Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today we have two very special guests with us. Uh, Carol, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Carol Jaffe. I'm a sociologist, and I'm located in the Advancing New Standards and Reproductive Health Program, ANSWER, at the University of California, San Francisco. I've studied abortion provision and especially abortion providers uh, for many years, and I'm very excited to have written this new book with my friend David Cohen. And I'm David Cohen. I'm a law professor in Philadelphia at Drexel University. I've been a lawyer representing abortion clinics and working on abortion access issues for two decades now. And I've written another book about anti-abortion terrorism, and I'm very excited about this new book with Carol as well. The name of the book is Obstacle Course, The Everyday Struggle to Get an Abortion in America. And it's a very important and timely book. The way that the book is laid out is that there's an introduction and then it talks about each uh, individual obstacle that, that may occur on the path from finding out that you're pregnant to actually getting the abortion. Do you want to talk about uh, how you came to write this book? I guess, Carol, I could start with you and, you know, why you did this project. To be very honest, I did this project. It was David's idea. Uh, he sent me the proposal to look at, and I did something that I've never done before in my career. I was so excited about the ideas he laid out that I sort of invited myself into the co-authorship role. So uh, let me turn to David, who will tell you how he originally got the idea. <laughs> well, the idea came from really working on these issues for so long and seeing the different ways that law and policy and society place an obstacle, like the title, a barrier in the way of people trying to get an abortion and trying to make sense of it all, because we hear so much in the news about these things. We may be familiar with it from advocacy, but trying to sort of lay out a clear picture of everything that's out there and organizing it, like you said, to start off, the organizing it each step along the way. So the way the book's organized, um, it starts with when someone's making their decision and then having to find a clinic and travel to a clinic, then get into the clinic, pay for the abortion, get the counseling at the clinic, then wait and then actually get the medical procedure. So we break it up that way to sort of show that at each point in that process, there are obstacles that patients have to overcome that are unparalleled in any other form of medicine. This is something that Karen and I are a little bit familiar with in that we do fundraising for the New York Abortion Access oh, Fund. Bravo. And you talk about abortion funds in your book as one resource for patients. So uh, we've had uh, some episodes about that previously on our show. And when we do that kind of fundraising, it's a way that anybody can can kind of uh, get involved. But it's only one small piece of the puzzle, as as you cover in your book, that, you know, a person might have the financial resources, but there's other laws that, that get thrown in your way. I had a question about kind of like a, a current event, I guess, for you, David, uh, as the attorney uh, writing this book. We're recording this on January 7th, and this week uh, I saw a press release. I didn't I didn't read the brief about uh, Republican lawmakers filing an amicus brief urging the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade and uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And my question is, and this is something that your book does explain, but then I guess it leads me to my question, is that, you know, we colloquially talk about Roe versus Wade, 
But technically, people will point out that the standard is actually Casey. And then my question after Hellerstat was, isn't the standard Hellerstat? So my question to you is, is the standard actually Hellerstat? And did the Republicans drop the ball? And I, Not that I'd want them to have a more uh, effective brief, but did they or should they have mentioned Hellerstat in their brief? There's a lot wrapped into that question. I think all three of those cases are the standard, and there's the standard in different ways. The basic foundational principle that the Constitution protects in some way a right to abortion and that people cannot be sent to jail for getting an abortion, that's Roe v. Wade, and that's still incredibly important. Abortion is very difficult for people to access, but people will not get thrown in jail in this country for having a legal abortion. And that's a hugely important part. In Roe v. Wade, that's still important. Casey and Hellerstedt give us the legal test, the legal framework for figuring out whether restrictions on abortion are constitutional. So all the things that we talk about in our book, when courts have to assess whether those are legal or constitutional, they have to use those standards. The brief that you mentioned that was filed by the members of Congress, you know, they seek overturning Roe. If Roe goes, then Casey and Hellerstedt go as well. There's no way those two cases survive without Roe because they are interpretations of Roe. They sort of follow on, build upon Roe. So that brief wants to get rid of the whole structure of abortion law, wants to get rid of all of constitutional law around abortion. But what's interesting about that brief is that it's not a new brief. Members of Congress who are opposed to abortion have been asking for this since 1986, at the least. In a case out of Pennsylvania called Thornburg, there were a few dozen members of Congress who wanted to overturn Roe. And they filed a similar brief in almost every abortion case since then. What's different about the brief that was filed last week is the huge numbers. Those cases had dozens, maybe even close to 100 members of Congress eventually signing on. But the brief that was filed last week had 207 members of Congress asking the Supreme Court to overturn Roe. I think that just goes to show how extreme certain members of Congress have become. A large portion of Congress has become in 2020. It's not that this sentiment is new, but the number of people who are asking for the court to overturn Roe who are members of Congress, that's new and that's scary. I'm curious why this seems to have become such a powerful tactic or concept uh, legislatively when it's not so popular as public opinion in the U.S., like the consequences of, of this would not be popular in the U.S. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question, because again and again, we we see polls saying 70 percent of the American people don't want Roe overturned. And I don't think there's one simple answer, but clearly it shows the very effective electoral strength of the anti-abortion movement. I mean, we are a low voting country. I mean, that started to change in 2018 and hopefully will continue in 2020. But until now, we are a low voting country. So somebody with the extraordinary resources of the anti-abortion movement, and I'm not talking just about money, I'm talking about, and I admire this, even though I completely politically disagree, obviously, but the people's willingness to, you know, to get up on cold nights and go uh, leaflet and work for candidates and not just money, time, effort, you know, the many different wings of this movement, the presence at clinics, the intimidation 
nation, as well as the electoral strength, to speak directly to the issue of legislators. If you're in a Republican-leaning district and you dare to say that you are not anti-abortion, you will be primaried in five seconds. So I think that that explains a lot to it. And I think one thing David and I feel very strongly, or I should just speak for myself, is that really nothing will change until our elections change. To coin a f not original phrase, elections have consequences. Speaking of this, there's something that I'm really curious about, this concept of um, abortion reversal. So this is something I've really struggled with because I don't really understand the logic of telling this lie to women <laughs> if you're against abortion. How does it prevent abortions? <laughs> I've been mystified by this too. And I think what you're getting at, I don't think this is talked about much, although certainly other people have brought it up as well. I don't think this is original. But if you tell someone that they can reverse something they're doing, even if you are working on the assumption someone's unsure, and most people who choose abortion are very certain about it. But if you're working on the assumption that someone's unsure and you tell them it's reversible, it's going to increase the number of people who take that action. So that's going exactly to what's confusing to me. Abortions, right? If you know that you can return a shirt at a store that you buy, you're more likely to buy it. That part of it's nonsensical. But I think also importantly, what's nonsensical is the medical aspect of this, which is that there's no medical evidence that this is an actual, safe, effective thing to do, that it's experimental at best, um, it's harmful at worst. So what these laws, and several states have enacted them, what these laws are doing is making medical professionals inform patients about experiments that are harmful to themselves, that will not give them any benefit. And it's really just a way to shame women, increase the sense that people are unsure about the choice of abortion, get that into the public narrative. So there are so many other motives going on here, and none of them are about helping the patient. If I can add to that, in fact, a, a doctor at the University of California, Davis, a leading OBGYN in this field, actually started a project to actually test this and then stopped the trial because, in fact, he realized that doing what the proponents of this procedure said, giving women, you know, lots of drugs to counteract, actually was dangerous. So we know, I mean, we know it's not simply a sham. We know it's dangerous. I want to add uh, one more thing to what David said. David said, this is a way to shame women. I would also add, this is a way to shame abortion providers. Yes. Abortion providers for years have been put in the position of being forced to, uh, by legislators to tell their patients outright lies. You know, and this is deeply, deeply offensive. I mean, if you have a sense of professional integrity. I mean, if you take an oath as a physician or a nurse practitioner to do no harm, is it not harm to tell your patients uh, they have now a higher risk of breast cancer, which in, in a number of states they're forced to do? So it's shaming doctors and clin other clinicians that provide abortions as well as the patients themselves. 
in my most cynical interpretation of what could possibly be the motivation for this is maybe to increase the number of people who regret getting an abortion because they thought it was reversible or to actually cause harm to people seeking abortion who try to do these reversals, which are harmful. No, I think your point about regret is really spot on. Yeah, and I, I think it goes to something we saw a lot in talking with the providers we talked to to write this book, which is that completely contrary to the myth that's out there, two myths that are out there, one, that abortion patients are uncertain about their decision, and two, that abortion providers are eager to push patients into having an abortion they don't want. Everyone we talk to from all over the country as the basis for writing this book without us even prompting them, talked about the importance of making sure that their patient wants to have an abortion. Not because they think that it's any different than any other medical care in the sense that abortion patients waver more than others, they don't. But just like any medical care, any provider wants to know, do you want to do this procedure? And if they see any equivocation, they talk to them more about it. It's one of the foremost priorities of every abortion provider is that they are not going to do a procedure on someone who doesn't want it or is uncertain about it. They need to make sure because it's not reversible. It's not reversible, just what you were saying. <laughs> so abortion providers are well aware of this. It's a basic standard of practice, standard of care. But this myth persists that patients are not certain and that providers don't care. Is there a similar thing going on with the uh, law about reimplanting ectopic pregnancies? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That one's even more bizarre. The Ohio legislator, and I feel like in a couple other states, people, other, others have talked about it. They seem to have surfaced a, um, I think it's from the 1910s, a doctor who wrote an article, you know, without any modern technology to know exactly what the doctor was doing, who claimed that he did this. It's never been done again, never been proven to be effective. But no one, everyone doubts whether it's, I mean, very critical. Doubt is probably not strong enough a word, is very critical of the idea that this can possibly happen. And actually, what's interesting is when the legislator was confronted with the medical evidence, he said, oh, I how am I supposed to know? I'm not a doctor. Well, it's like, that's <laughs> the entire point. Legislators aren't doctors, most of them aren't doctors, aren't medical professionals. They don't know what they're doing. They can't be the ones who are legislating this kind of absurdity like what you just mentioned or any of the things we talk about in our book where they're interfering with medical care that is safe, common, and without interference should be easy to get. Yeah, if I can just add to that, your listeners might remember that back in 2012 when Obama was running for re-election, and there was a lot of Senate races, obviously, on the ballot. A Senate candidate in Missouri, they were talking about whether abortion should be necessary in cases of rape. And that legislator said, well, her body has a way of shutting that thing down. Yeah, I mean, th those <laughs> were the exact words, shutting that thing down if a woman is raped and therefore wouldn't get pregnant, which, of course, is nonsense. And what's interesting to me from the perspective of 2020 is in 2012, when that candidate said such an absurd, idiotic thing, he actually lost the race. Today, there's so much junk science, so many legislators saying such absurd things about reversal, about you take out an ectopic pregnancy and you put it back. We've sort of lost the shock value eight years later. So potentially one of the 
the end games of this because I'm really struggling to figure out what their possible end games are here because all of these really seem to increase abortion rates in my mind. But um, to muddy the waters or to use a really jargony way of putting it, like define deviancy down in that like keeping these wild things, moving them more towards the center. I guess maybe the the modern phraseology for that would be like changing the Overton window of what you're allowed to say about abortion without getting shunned. Yeah, I mean, I think the Overton window has been changed on so much in the past two or three years. And it's really unfortunate. What the end game is, I don't know right now. It You know, for a long time, there were a lot of people who thought that the Republican Party did not really want to ban abortion, that they liked to use it as a wedge issue, and Roe was just really useful to them. It was good to have and not have overturned because they could fight against it, rally their troops to get them to support policies, economic policies that are harmful to a vast majority of the country, but they might support those economic policies because that same party is supporting the overturning of Roe. So you could use that as a way to get people to support other things. But it does seem like now there's a significant number of people who actually want to overturn Roe. And then what does the world look like then? Like you said, that would be unpopular with a large number of people, but would it be unpopular with the base that's supporting these radical extremists in office? I don't know. So the end game might just be more of the same, what we're seeing now, like a worse version of today, because for a lot of people around the country, abortion access is really difficult, not impossible, although I guess for some people impossible, but you have to jump through so many hoops, go through so many obstacles and barriers to get an abortion. So maybe it's just the end game is to make it a more extreme version of what we see today. But the end game could also be that in half the states, maybe two thirds of the states, abortion is illegal or almost illegal. And so people have to travel all over the country, the hope to lower the abortion rate. I don't know if that's the end, put people, put doctors and patients in jail. I don't know if that's the end game, but I think it's more on the table now than it was say 10, 15 years ago. I think that's why this book is important because I think the average person who maybe votes, but maybe doesn't pay attention to politics all the time or the specific politics of abortion doesn't know about a lot of these things. And um, like I said, Karen and I raised money for uh, the New York Abortion Access Fund, and I did some volunteering as a clinic escort about 10 years ago. And I think when I would talk about these things with my friends and family who are generally pro-choice people, what kind of filters down to them is Republicans want to make abortion illegal. What they don't see if they're not paying close attention is this death by a thousand cuts that's going on. And, you know, when I would say, oh, you know, I've got to get up early tomorrow. I'm going to be a clinic escort. Oh, what's that? And I would explain and they would say, really? You know, in New York, people protest outside clinics. I didn't know that. Like, why would they do that? What is going on? Like, I had never heard of that. Stuff like that. So I think that that's one thing that I hope that this book raises awareness of. And um, you need to go through the whole thing. If I may, I think Karen said it might be helpful to go through the just the chapter titles, making the decision, coping with roadblocks, deception, and lies, finding and getting to a clinic, hard to find, harder to reach. And what 
blew me away about that chapter was that I had known that sometimes crisis pregnancy centers set up next to real abortion clinics, but it seems like it happens much more frequently than people even know. And I was I was wondering if, I guess, Carolyn and David, if you, you care to speak to that, and I guess, David, on the legality of that, because I, I know that some states are trying to regulate CPCs with, with mixed results, but um, that was very alarming. I'll just start by saying it's a very common tactic. As soon as it's clear that property next to abortion clinic is available, anti-abortion forces swoop in by it. We document a number of times in, in our book how abortion patients literally showed up in the wrong place. Uh, in fact, we start the book with such a case, a, a young woman who was just blown away. And not only is this obviously very upsetting and traumatic once you realize you, you are in the wrong place, but you're often lied to. The people in the clinic can tell you, oh, you're either you're too far along, you can't even get an abortion, even if you wanted one, or they lie and say, you know, you still have plenty of time when in fact you don't have plenty of time. So these things can be extremely upsetting and often very confusing. We, we talk about in the book about a crisis pregnancy center that was literally sharing a parking lot and, and patients were wrongly led to the wrong place. So I'll let David tell you about a very disappointing Supreme Court case that recently happened. It's just shocking when you think about it. I think you're right to frame it in terms of what, what people think they know about the world of abortion, but actually don't. I mean, this is one of them. Can you imagine another area of healthcare where there are thousands of clinics set up to give you misinformation and deceive you out of making a choice, whether it's for heart conditions or anything else that you might encounter, and that they're giving misinformation designed to make you make a different choice than what you have already come to about what's best for you in your life and your body. It's impossible to imagine that. There's no other area of medicine where we would allow this to happen. And yet, that's what's happening around the country. And the Supreme Court gave its blessing to it two years ago in a case out of California. California was one of the states that tried to do a minimally, minimally kind of regulation of these kinds of centers. They didn't try to shut them down. They didn't try to tell them what they can and cannot consult with people about. They didn't say you can't say any lies. They basically just said you have to tell people who come to these centers whether or not you are a licensed facility. And if you are a licensed facility, you have to also tell them that they can get health care, including abortions and birth control, at other California public centers. So that was it. And the Supreme Court said that this was a violation of First Amendment free speech principles because this was compelled speech. And one of the basic principles of constitutional law is that you can't force people to say things they don't want to say. Now, in the world of business, businesses all the time have to say things to their consumers, to their employees about basic regulatory things. You know, we're familiar with in the kitchen of a business or the break room, they post a sign that says the minimum wage is $7.25 or whatever it is in that state. But the Supreme Court said, no, that's not the same thing. This is political speech that you're forcing these crisis pregnancy centers, fake clinics to say, and you can't do that. So now states are at a loss for what to do. You know, some people are trying to figure out what kinds of regulations might be allowed and which ones won't. But right now, these fake clinics are free to do what they want. Even though 
the CPCs cannot be told what they have to say. At the same time, abortion providers, you know, can be compelled by the state to say certain things. To give false medical information. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The way I quipped about it to my students, I said that the fake clinics have real First Amendment rights and the real clinics have fake First Amendment rights. <laughs> That's a terrible irony about the way the, the law shakes out. It's horrible. David, do you think the Supreme Court would ever like hear that argument, though? Like if a clinic or Planned Parenthood said our doctors, their free speech rights are being violated, has that ever come up with these laws? Yes. So that was one of the complicating parts of this case. The, the thinking was, well, maybe if the, if the fake clinic wins, we could use that ruling to say that the doctors and nurses and advanced practice clinicians at abortion clinics have First Amendment rights and don't have to give the advice that we were talking about earlier, like about the fake breast cancer warning or the abortion reversal, that they have First Amendment rights not to do that. That case still has not been litigated. I mean, there are cases that have raised those issues. They've come to mixed results in the lower courts. The Supreme Court has not addressed it. But in that fake clinic case from a couple of years ago, Justice Thomas wrote the opinion, and he put in a couple sentences anticipating this issue. And he kind of said, although it's not binding because it's kind of just an aside, he said that real medical clinics are different because you can regulate what real medical clinics say as part of informed consent. So basically, the reason that these fake clinics have First Amendment rights, the court was saying, is because they're not really providing medical care. They are fake. And because they're fake, they're political. And when they're political, they can't be forced to say things they don't want to say. But medical care is not political. And we always regulate and form. You know, it's just this crazy loophole backwards, up is down world. With this Supreme Court, I don't think that First Amendment challenge would win for the abortion providers. I hope somewhat time in the future when we have a better Supreme Court, it will. <laughs> the next chapter is about the money. Carol, do you want to talk about that? I mean, coming up with the money is what all the providers told us is uh, for many of their clients or patients, you know, the chief obstacle. I mean, that 50% of abortion patients are below the federal poverty line. Another 25% are classified as working poor. So 75% of abortion patients have difficulties paying for their abortion. The abortion funds, like those that you two work for, and which are all over the country now, play a hugely important role. And I personally cannot thank the two of you enough and your colleagues for, for doing what you do. But I think what, what David and I found out in our book, talking to providers, is that paying for the procedure is obviously the biggest obstacle, but that's not the only one. More and more abortion patients need help getting, and I'm sure you see this in New York, uh, where people come from out of state, people need help getting to the site of abortions. People need help paying for lodging overnight. Some abortion procedures, those later in, in gestation, often are done over a two-day period, or even if they're not, uh, some states have 24-hour waiting periods, some have 48, a handful have now have 72-hour waiting periods. And we also found out that people drive very long distances for their abortions. Uh, so if you're driving 400 miles 
to the site of your abortion, uh, you're counseled on day one and told to come back 48 or 72 hours later, you may or may not, or 24 hours later, you may or may not decide to go back to where you live. You're going to need money to pay for childcare for the children you left behind. And we know that a majority of abortion patients, about 60%, are parents. So the costs of an abortion go well beyond simply paying for the procedure. Carol, the next chapter of your book is about, it's called uh, Getting in Chaos Outside the Clinic. And that's something that when I volunteered as a clinic escort, I got to see firsthand. We also had an episode where we interviewed uh, Lindsay Beierstein, who made a film called Care in Chaos that compared yes. uh, clinics, I believe it was in South Dakota and in uh, North Carolina. I think it was Fargo, actually. Yeah. Oh, right, right, Fargo, North Dakota, I'm sorry. Can you talk a little bit about the research about clinic escorts and the impact they have on patients? Because I think that was one of the areas for hope in this book. I think you're right, especially when you talked about talking with your friend about not realizing that even clinics in New York have protesters who torture patients and providers as they're getting into work or going for a procedure. This happens all over the country in very different contexts and different numbers. You know, some clinics have a handful of protesters on a regular basis or just on Saturdays. Other clinics have hundreds, if not sometimes thousands of protesters outside who are making it, a, you know, even if the thousand people outside are being as peaceful as possible, and that's not the case, but even if they were, imagine going into a medical office with a thousand people opposed to what you're doing even if they're quiet and peaceful, standing out there. That's intimidating itself. You add on that they're not being peaceful, that they're shouting, they're on megaphones, they have props, they have gruesome signs, they're yelling at things about you as a murderer, whether you're a patient or a provider. It's very intimidating. Throughout the book, we talk about the role of volunteers in helping abortion access. And one of the major ways that volunteers help is through escorting. It's wonderful that you've done that in the past. I salute everyone who's been an escort. I encourage, you know, when people ask me, what can we do? I say, donate to abortion funds, escort, and vote. Those are the three things that are always my, what do you do? Because escorting is so important. It doesn't solve the problem. It helps though. It helps make sure that there's a friendly face a friendly voice who is there to walk alongside of a patient, no matter how confident the patient is, it's not to make sure the patient feels, oh, this is the right decision, it's to make sure the patient feels supported and protected just in getting from public transportation to the entrance to the building or from the car to the entrance to the building, whatever it is. And there's a friendly voice, a friendly face there to say, I'm gonna support you, I'm gonna get you in, and make sure that these other people, as best as I can, are not intimidating you. And that really does make a difference for patients coming in. It makes a difference for providers, because providers often use escorts to get in, too. It's a big way that people can help. And I would just add to that, I mean, one of the most interesting things to me as someone who studies abortion, you know, is just in a way that was not true elsewhere in medicine, how absolutely crucial the geography of your clinic is, the layout. Like people who have private parking lots or people who have protected access that providers can't demonstrate directly in front of the clinic. They're separated either by a highway or, or whatever. Nowhere else in medicine does the peculiarity of how you're 
facility happens to be situated matters so much. So a number of times we would talk to providers and they would tell us, well, we're really lucky because our back parking lot, you can't get there. Or um, sometimes providers are located in a medical setting that has other facilities, other things. People don't necessarily know if someone is walking toward that building, people don't necessarily know which, which place they're going to. Uh, so, I mean, that helps a lot, but that leads to the next problem facing providers. And we do talk about this in the book, the difficulty of renting spaces. A lot of landlords don't want to rent to an abortion clinic, whether or not they personally are pro-choice or not. They just don't want the hassle. The fortunate ones are those able to purchase their own buildings. Some Planned Parenthoods are able to do that. Some independent clinics are able to do that. Most are not. So, I mean, real estate, getting the right real estate is essential for people to be able to smoothly run an abortion service. This is an interesting question, because at what point does protest become harassment? As a general matter, I think often protest becomes harassment. I can imagine a situation where someone is protesting off to the side, respectfully, quietly, peacefully, without a sign, just, I don't know, praying in a far from it, but protesting that way. I'm not going to say that's harassment, right? I think a lot of what happens is harassment, though. It's specifically designed to be harassment. You know, they won't say that. They say we're just trying to counsel or pray or express our views. But it is, I think it's intent, intended to harass the patients. As a legal matter, though, it's very difficult to cross that line to what is harassment. First of all, what's harassment differs in every state. There's no universal form of what is harassment. And some states don't even make that a crime or a violation of the law unless you're in a certain relationship with the person. So, you know, a lot of times the protesters are very well versed in what the law is, where they are, what lines they can't cross, both verbally, physically, spatially. And so they may cross those lines when the police aren't there, but then when the police get there, they say, oh, I didn't do that. They didn't, I never said that. I didn't speak at that volume. I didn't stand where she said I did. And then the police are loath to do anything about it because they don't want to be seen as taking sides. So it's really hard for clinics or patients to actually make a legal case of harassment or any other violation of the law, because I think you really do have police who want to be seen as neutral, and they just basically want to say, okay, you over here, say whatever you want, you go into your building over here, and if it's going to be you know, intimidating or harassing, I don't care, just don't hurt anyone. It's so difficult, though. I mean, when you're talking about, you know, peaceful protest, one of the first times that I was a clinic escort, there was someone who had a giant picture of Mary and was saying the rosary, and that probably would fall into that peaceful, prayerful protest. But as someone who was raised Catholic, I found it abhorrent and very disturbing, and I wasn't even there as a patient. I was there to to help the patients. So I think it's an interesting line. I think, it, you know, we're talking about free speech rights and, and, and the right to access medical care. You know, I think the the book lays this out in detail. And thank you for sorting through that. I guess as we're going on the uh, the through line, the next one uh, chapter is about government mandated deceit, you say, at the, at the clinic. What are some things that uh, doctors are mandated to tell their patients that aren't true? I mean, the, it varies from state to state. There was a very thorough research project done um, 
by political scientists at Rutgers University. I mean, they gathered all the informational scripts that providers were supposed to say, and they presented them to a neutral group. This was about specifically about fetal development. And they presented them to a group of experts in, in fetal development. They didn't tell them it was about abortion. They just said, could you evaluate these scripts for the, for the truthfulness? And uh, I forgot the overall figure of deceit. I do remember that North Carolina had the distinction of telling the most lies. So, for example, in some states... I mean, beyond the breast cancer and the su and you, your higher risk for suicide. I mean, there's lies about fetal development. So lies about you know when um, when fetuses feel pain. That's a very common one. I mean, the major consensus within the medical profession is that fetuses are incapable of feeling pain until early in the third trimester of pregnancy, when fetuses develop di different capacities. So, I mean, there's that kind of lie, which obviously can be very upsetting to patients. But that one in particular frustrates me so much because of like the conflation of neuron firing and perception as of my field. But um, what the fetus can perceive as pain versus evidence that we see physically of the neurons associated with pain. I don't know. Sorry. This is me getting too in the weeds, but this one in particular makes me so angry because also pain and suffering are two different things. It's irritating. I hate this one. The fetal pain, it makes me so angry. And the fetal pain has been very potent politically. I mean, a number of states have banned abortions after 20 weeks on the false assumption that fetuses can feel pain. Now, it's estimated about 1.5% of abortions, in fact, take place after 20 weeks. But this is a big country. And there are still patients who, for various reasons, sometimes fetal anomalies, sometimes literally for all the reasons we've talked about already, been unable to get to a clinic in, in time for an earlier abortion. I mean, these are important uh, abortions for the relative minority of women uh, who need them. So these fetal pain laws that have led to the 20-week bans are very consequential. One of the things that's so odd about the counseling that, and counseling, I'm using in quotes here, that is required by the state from these medical professionals is that it puts them in a position of saying to their patient, what I am about to tell you is not true. Imagine going to a, a physician or any medical care and them telling you, well, the state makes me tell you this. I'm telling you this. I want to think that the patients will believe the doctor or nurse or physician's assistant or whoever else. But, you know, I think that's the best case scenario. The more likely as well is that the patient's just confused. The patient's like, okay, the state's saying one thing. The medical professional in front of me is saying something else. Who am I to know the answer to what they're saying now that just leaves the patient confused? I think that's part of the goal here, too, to scare patients, shame patients, but also confuse patients and make them not trust the medical care provider that's in front of them. And that's all a result of what we're talking about the state's interference here with the otherwise in every other medical field, the judgment of the medical care professional to give the patient the information that they need to make an informed decision about what procedure they're going to have. And the state's getting involved here in a way that it just doesn't otherwise. 
besides mandating what the provider has to tell the patient, some states have published material that the clinic is compelled to share with the patient. And I had the opportunity to look at the material from the state of Louisiana, which, of course, is the subject of the next Supreme Court case that will be heard in March. Not only was the information and the various ways we've talked about untrue, but the phrase that they kept using was not the fetus, was the unborn child. So in other words, reinforcing to the woman who is sitting there having to read this stuff, you are carrying a, quote, unborn child. This is, to say the least, not neutral language. There are some states that require the provider to say, you are ending the life of a human being. Of a wholly uh, unique. Wholly unique human being. Um, and that's been upheld by the courts. Um, I'm trying to find, oh, here it is. You are terminating the life of a whole separate, unique, living human being. They are required to say that to their patients. Now, they can say whatever they want beforehand. They can say things like, and they do, the state requires me to tell you that, but it interferes in care. It interferes in the relationship between the medical care provider and their patient, and it interferes in the patient's own autonomy to make a decision. I'm just like sitting here very grumpy. <laughs> I don't even have a response. <laughs> The next obstacle you discuss is uh, waiting periods, and we talked about this a little bit in the, the funding aspect of it, in that the longer that you wait, the more an abortion may cost. And I think this kind of echoes back almost to the idea about abortion reversal. What David said was that it implies that a person is unsure. And I think if you talk to someone who is anti-choice, they'll say, well, a waiting period's good because it makes them think about it, as if... You know, women who get abortions haven't thought about it. Not only does it often lead to abortion costing more, I mean, not just the procedure itself, but the cost of having to stay in, in the community where the clinic is. But also we found a number of cases, I mean, a number of providers told us that sometimes these waiting periods can lead to the woman going over the gestational limit that that clinic can provide. South Dakota in particular has very onerous, I mean, it has a 72-hour waiting period. It has the further logistical complexity. You're counseled by a doctor, and you have to have your procedure with that very same doctor. And here we see all the complexities and the logistical nightmares of abortion care sort of coming together. No local doctor will provide abortions in that one clinic in South Dakota. All the doctors fly in, fly in from different places. We talked to one doctor who told us of just this nightmare. South Dakota is, is Midwest, heavy-duty winters. The doctor who flies in also flies in from a Midwest state with heavy-duty winters, you know, and she talked about the nightmare that, you know, I see the patient on Monday. If I can't get to that clinic on Thursday, then she has to start the whole counseling procedure over again the following Monday. Plus, in South Dakota, abortions are done only to 14 weeks. So if I don't get there on that Thursday, if my plane is canceled, if it snows too much, this woman won't be able to get an abortion. This doctor told us a story of how she drove in the snow because she felt so committed to making it there so that patient could get her abortion that day. But, you know, a, a phrase that we use throughout our book is abortion exceptionalism. In other words, abortion being different in every way 
almost uh, from other kinds of health care. And here is one example of abortion exceptionalism. You know, where else do you tremble and then drive through the snow because the procedure you're going to do that Thursday by law won't be allowed the following week? And, you know, it, it's just it's just crazy. Yeah. And, you know, with waiting periods, I think, you know, a lot of people say, well, I have to wait to get my medical care because I call my doctor up and my doctor doesn't have availability for two months. So um, what's the big deal about waiting? Well, the big deal about waiting is two things. One, abortion's different in this regard because the further you get along in pregnancy, the procedure changes, it gets more expensive, and you can time out. So that's one. But two, the provider here is available. The provider is saying, I have space in my calendar today to see someone. I can treat them today. But by law, I am being told I have to wait 24, 48, 72 hours. That's the difference, right? When I call up my primary care provider and they say, I can't see you till you know March, um, that's because their schedule doesn't allow that. The abortion providers are masters of efficiency, and they can usually see patients same day, if not within the same week. But they're t being told by the law, you have to do something different than what you can do otherwise. And that's what makes this such a big deal. You saying that, Carol, makes me wonder about how this impacts, you know, the quality of care, because obviously I have the utmost respect for these doctors that go through all these things to help their patients. But I was just thinking, um, I had my gallbladder removed last year, and the night before I was just thinking to myself, I hope my surgeon gets a good night's sleep. <laughs> but if he had driven through hours and hours of snow, I question if that was the best time to have an operation, you know? It, it, it's... <laughs> Worrying to me. Uh, uh, no, it's a reasonable question. I mean, on the other hand, we have very good data to answer your question, namely that abortion is extraordinarily safe procedures, yes. safer mm -hmm. than ibuprofen, safer than colonoscopy, safe, safer than many procedures that have, I mean, that are less regulated but have more injury and mortality. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to tell you one story that, which is not in our book, it's research I had done earlier, but epitomized for me the, the surreality of abortion care. And again, it involves snow. Again, it involves a Midwest state where the doctor who was supposed to drive in was stuck in his driveway with ice. The clinic had a room full of patients. The clinic director was desperate. She was then told by one of her staff, oh, I saw Dr. So-and-so at the health club. I mean, this was a, a young physician who had actually didn't work at the clinic. She had trained at the clinic. She now lived out of state. So the director ran out in the sub-freezing weather, ran to the health club, which was in the same mall as, as the clinic, pounded on the door of the sauna, <laughs> and got the doctor's attention and said, we need you, come to the clinic. So the doctor <laughs> jumped out of the sauna, took a shower, ran to the clinic. You know, the clinic director who told me the story said, it was a little bit late, but everybody got their clinic. But the kicker, then she told me, you know what, Carol, that wasn't even the worst problem we had that day. Our pipes froze. And I couldn't get a plumber who, uh, who was willing to come to the clinic because they were all anti-abortion. So that's a day in the life you know, of an abortion provider. This kind of uh, moves nicely into the next chapter, which is uh, politics overriding medical expertise. <laughs> yeah, that's all about gestational limits and when, you know, the way that 
politics try to say what procedure you can and can't have. I mean, when we go to the doctor, we or any medical care professional, we like to think that they are using their expert learned judgment to give us advice about what our options are. And then we combined with, you know, whatever information we found out, whoever we consult, make the decision about what to do. What we don't expect to happen is that politicians who have no expertise in anything related to medicine are the ones telling the medical care provider what procedures they can and can't do, what way to do them, when to do them. But that's what we have in this world. And so we have states that have said you can't have procedures after 20 weeks or after um, 22 weeks. You know, we've seen in the past year a bunch of states try and ban abortion at six weeks. Thankfully, those have all been stopped in court so far. We see states that are saying that you can't perform particular types of abortion procedures. The one that's most on the chopping block right now is dilation and um, evacuation, which is short, shortened to D&E, which is the most common form of second trimester abortion. If that gets outlawed, then doctors are either going to have to say, we can't do a second trimester abortion, or they're going to have to try this other some other procedures that are not as safe, which is a terrible position to put your patients into. So, you know, we see the, the states trying to interfere with the actual medical care, not everything that leads up to it, but the actual procedure itself in ways that have no support in medicine are nothing about safety, protecting the patient. They're all about trying to, you know, limit or end abortion. And they're very effective politically, these campaigns. I mean, most of the attempt to regulate procedures occurs later in abortion. As I said before, only 1.5% of abortions take place then. The procedures, when you describe them out of context, they are upsetting. So what David just referred to as D&Es, uh, the medical term for dilation and evacuation, the anti-abortion movement calls dismemberment abortions. That's not a very pleasant thing to think about. So these, these campaigns are very effective politically. They distort people's understanding of abortions. Most, For example, a few years ago in the so-called, quote, partial birth abortion campaign, again, a very rarely used technique, the public ended up thinking half of all abortions take place at the you know the very end of pregnancy, which is absolutely untrue. So this this is a very very alarming uh, development. I mean, only 1.5 take place um, after 20 weeks, but the procedures that are used, I mean, are the medically safest, and that's what doctors should use. So thank you for walking us through this. You know, you wanted to talk about the way you sum up your book about, you know, an alternate vision as normal healthcare and um, the way that it is in in other countries and in other places. And in other states. And in other states, yeah. In in New York, it's it's not as bad as it is in other, other places around the country. Do you think that that's a kind of a source for optimism or? I do. I mean, New York, as I'm sure you two know, New York City just uh, added was it $250,000 uh, to mm -hmm. an abortion fund that yep. can be used for women outside of New York who come mm -hmm. to New York uh, for these procedures. The blue states are getting bluer, and that's very, very encouraging. California just passed a law saying uh, that all California public universities and four-year colleges have to make medication abortion available in their infirmaries. 
Maine just did a number of really important uh, reforms. Uh, Medicaid will, in Maine will now pay for poor women's abortions. So the blue states are getting bluer, and that's very encouraging to me. Telemedicine, the states that allow it, has made abortion much more accessible to women in rural areas. The challenge, as I said before, the challenge is to get women from the red states to the blue states. Donate, escort, vote, anything else? Oh, I do want to just add personally, uh, a friend of mine helped her friend get an abortion in the Las Vegas area and said that there was not a local abortion access fund that she could get in touch with. So if you are in the Las Vegas area, that might be organizing an abortion access fund and getting in touch with uh, the National Network of Abortion Access Funds. If you need an abortion in Nevada or in the Las Vegas area, you also can call the hotline of the National Abortion Federation, uh, which also uh, helps patients uh, pay for abortions. When I think of reasons for optimism, it's the blue states getting bluer, like you said. What we see from volunteers and providers who are so committed to overcoming these obstacles you know, a lot of what we talked about is really depressing. But the flip side of it is that we have amazing people in this movement, both activists and providers who are working to overcome these obstacles. And, you know, also when you look around and you see the way that the reproductive justice movement in particular has really enlivened this issue, the activism around here. I mean, everything we're talking about falls so heavily on poor people and particularly women of color. And reproductive justice speaks to that. It speaks to the connection with this issue and other issues like voting and immigration and prison reform and other issues and tries to tie it all together. And I think we see this new generation of activists who are really talking about these issues in complex, important ways that keeps this front and center, even when we're not specifically talking about abortion, keeping uh, reproductive justice front and center. And that's really invigorating, too. We've got a lot of work to do, but there's reason for optimism. Yeah, I love the um, kind of reproductive justice approach, because whenever I think about ways that people have tried to prevent abortion by allowing people to have children they do want to have or have babies that they carry the pregnancy that they want to have to term, you know, you think about like the laundries or the forced adoption kind of stuff and to see it come from this other side where it's like, no, actually we're respecting the person gestating, not just what they're gestating and what their wishes are, which is really so fundamental to this whole thing for me. When does the book come out? The book will be uh, should be available um, around mid-February. Okay, sure. So uh, is there anything else either of you would like to add? This is an important year. And if you care about these issues, I mean, you should be voting every election, local, state, and national. But the stakes are so high right now. And everyone who listens to this should be getting everyone they know to make sure they vote. If you're not voting, you're doing it wrong because the stakes are incredibly high right now. And if you care about this issue in particular, the stakes are even higher. What David said. (laughs) (laughs) Carol, where can people find uh, you or more about your work online? Uh, If they go to the uh, website of ANSWER, uh, www.ansirh, and put my name into the search, they'll find various articles I've written and more, more about my work. And are you also on social media? 
usually retweet <laughs> David and other people. <laughs> I am on Facebook. David and I are discussing whether or not we actually want to have a website for our book, but I'll let him speak to that. Where could people find you on Twitter then? They can find me at DSC250 on Twitter and Facebook. And hopefully by the time this uh, podcast is out, um, we'll have a website for the book called abortionobstaclecourse.com. We're working on that. And uh, hopefully everyone can find that easily. And Carol, where could people find you on Twitter? At Carol Joffe, one word. You can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me on Twitter at uh, Karen, U-H-K-A-R-E-N. Thank you so much. Uh, Obstacle Course, it comes out, according to Amazon, February 18th. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.